On June 17, 2015, Dylan Roof walked into a black church in Charleston, South Carolina. He attended a Bible study with the assembled members. After an hour of study and conversation, and as the group began to pray, Roof stood up and emptied a firearm and murdered nine people. On January 16, 2016, then-President Barack Obama officially declared a public health crisis in Flint, Michigan. Corroded pipes from the Flint River exposed the poor and mostly black residents of Flint to lead poisoning. October 1, 2017. 64-year-old Stephen Paddock opened the window from his 32nd-floor room at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas and rained gunfire on concert-goers below, killing 59 people and wounding more than 500. October 2, 2018. Veteran U.S.-based journalist Jamal Khashoggi entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Despite months of denials from the Saudi government, investigations revealed that Mr. Khashoggi was restrained and drugged, causing him to overdose. His body was dismembered and disposed of. August 2019 The world briefly paid attention to a scientific report that revealed more than 74,000 fires had already blazed in the Amazon, doubling the total from the prior year. Increasingly hot and dry weather in the Amazon fueled the fires set by loggers to clear the most important ecosystem on the planet for further industrial use, contributing to the vicious cycle of climate change. In January of 2020, President Donald Trump authorized the assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani by drone strike. The strike occurred on January 3rd, murdering arguably the most powerful and popular figure in Iran, but on Iraqi soil along with five Iraqis and four Iranian nationals. And on August 15, 2021, the American flag was removed from the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan, as the last remaining American troops and diplomats from around the world scrambled to flee the country as the Taliban concluded its final and stunning siege of the nation. The takeaway from this episode will come later, but was actually teased in our quickie last week. But the point of this exercise is to demonstrate that we will forget we will move on. The premeditated and cold-blooded murder of black worshippers by an avowed white supremacist should have altered the conversation on gun control like Sandy Hook should have and like the Las Vegas massacre should have. But we move on. The killing and dismembering of a U.S.-based journalist by the murderously corrupt and brutal Saudi regime should have been the end of our relationship with them or at a minimum sparked rebuke and had consequences. But that was inconvenient and so we moved on. We cared for a moment about the children of Flint, Michigan, whose development and cognitive functions will be forever impacted and whose health will always be compromised by lead poisoning. But they were poor and mostly black. So it was important to us, but only for a moment. Had any other nation in the world assassinated the most prominent and popular figure of another country, it might have been grounds for war, if not some level of retaliation. But it was us, so it didn't matter didn't matter that it was illegal and in violation of international treaties and norms. The most significant ecosystem on Earth, the lungs of the planet, are being shredded and burned, intensifying the trajectory and effects of climate change. Have you read about it lately? And now that we've pulled the plug on Afghanistan, it's all we can think about or talk about. But there's a high likelihood that it will have moved off the front pages by the time this podcast hits your feed. But we need to talk about it. We need to talk about not only what happened and why, but take a step further and talk about what happens next. What happens when we leave? This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast Just what the world needs Started a podcast Another basic white guy who Started a podcast But it's fun because he curses All through the podcast The 
the speed of the Taliban advance as U.S. troops withdraw ahead of a September deadline has shocked the West. If you're just joining us, we're getting new developments from Afghanistan where the situation is changing there minute by minute. The Taliban have surrounded The Taliban are now in complete control of Afghanistan. As Afghanistan falls to Taliban control, the Biden administration stands by its plan to leave. President Biden has tonight sought to defend the manner of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan after chaotic scenes at Kabul airport as desperate Afghans tried to flee the country following the Taliban's takeover yesterday. 20 years ago, the U.S. and its allies invaded a country that had no part in 9-11, the pretext for the war other than harboring the Saudi terrorists on the fringe of its vast, ungovernable wasteland. But we didn't hold the Saudis accountable. Instead, we invaded, terrorized, and occupied the whole of Afghanistan for two straight decades in our most protracted war. Actually, here to clarify this statement is the great Howard Zinn. When the war started in Afghanistan, to call it a war is actually a misnomer. I mean, this isn't a war between two equal parties, the United States and Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a helpless, miserable country, and the United States bombs Afghanistan, and it's called a war. And now we're leaving, just like that. In our current media landscape, there are a handful of competing narratives at play. We should have never been there. We should have stayed longer. The Taliban is a loose patchwork of disorganized factions incapable of governing. The Taliban is highly organized and ready to build an Islamic republic that will brutally institute Sharia law and subjugate women and girls in Afghanistan. It fell so quickly because the Afghan culture is inherently corrupt. They are a weak people and incapable of absorbing the best military training by the finest war machine in history. The right is blaming Joe Biden for fucking up our departure. The left is deflecting by saying that Trump crafted this plan. And both are lamenting the fate of the poor women of Afghanistan as if we ever really gave a flying fuck about them or their rights. Because if we gave a flying fuck, we'd be preaching that gospel in Saudi Arabia instead of arming them to the teeth to do our dirty work in the Middle East. Now, I've read that the war in Afghanistan cost the United States a trillion dollars. I've also read that it cost two trillion and three trillion all from credible sources. But it's hard to disentangle the Afghanistan war budget from the entire military apparatus, and in the end, it probably doesn't matter. I mean, don't get me wrong, it fucking matters. But it's spent, it's over. So we're here to talk about what will matter going forward, and more on that later. Perhaps the most consistent media narrative is to liken the evacuation of Kabul to our unceremonious departure from Saigon. The optics do feel like an echo, but this comparison will fall apart in relatively short order. To be clear, there are parallels between our entanglements and abrupt exits from Vietnam and Afghanistan. Prior to our involvement in Vietnam, the French occupied the territory. Prior to our involvement in Afghanistan, the Russians occupied it. Both of these experiences turned the youth of these countries into hardened warriors who were forged in conflict and prepared to engage for the long haul. Both were cast out of cities when the U.S. set up temporary institutions that gave the appearance of stability, while the rebels held the rural parts and grew ever more obstinate and radical. Both conflicts crossed multiple U.S. administrations and ultimately ended with us calling it a stalemate rather than admitting defeat. And both fell almost immediately when the paper infrastructure and corrupt puppet governments we installed were left to their own devices. Saigon, April the 30th, 8 o'clock. The last American helicopter on the roof of the American embassy prepares to lift off the last of the evacuees fleeing before the advancing communist armies. An American military transport plane on the runway this morning, mobbed by Afghans trying to flee their country. Both collapses were blamed on backwards and rural people who we considered to be ungovernable savages, incapable of running a democracy. As if a military insurgency has ever actually built democratic non-military institutions anywhere, ever. The Vietnamese deserved communism because they didn't value human rights and civil liberties. Believe it or not, that was a prevailing intellectual sentiment at the time. And today, it's that the Afghan people were too simple, too corrupt, and too weak to adopt democracy and fight back against the Taliban. The political leaders of Afghanistan were unable to come together for the good of their people, unable to negotiate for the future of their country when the chips were down. They would never have done so while U.S. troops remained in Afghanistan, bearing the brunt of the fighting for them. 
Biden's disgusting and insensitive defense of our withdrawal and shaming of the Afghan people for being cowardly and corrupt is a very Biden thing to do. See, Biden's always cared deeply about U.S. citizens and American interests. You can criticize him all you want for his politics, but the man is deeply patriotic and fiercely loyal. But Biden is also an old-school patriot and loyalist who sees the world as an imperial classist, a typical American exceptionalism view of the world. Aside from the fact that it honestly seemed like he was fighting the urge to fall asleep during this rather significant speech, the callousness of it was kind of jarring. Contrast this with the always slick and sensitive approach from Trudeau, who made sure to pack his remarks with crucial liberal buzzwords. Our commitment to the people of Afghanistan, including women and girls and the LGBTQ2 communities, remains unwavering. Why was Trudeau even commenting, you might ask? After all, Canada has been officially out of Afghanistan since 2014. It's because many of those who worked as translators and facilitators to the Canadian troops remain in the country with immigration options quickly dwindling. According to the CBC, more than 40,000 Canadians served in Afghanistan and many of those who returned still suffer the psychological trauma from their deployment. And while deployed, they relied heavily on interpreters who are shit out of luck at the moment, with the Taliban already sending messages directly to anyone suspected of aiding Western powers during the occupation. As usual, Canada's response sucks less than ours, but it doesn't excuse them from prior imperialist form. Nevertheless, in addition to saying the right thing about the withdrawal, the Canadian government has agreed to fast-track 20,000 visas to Afghan refugees, assuming, of course, they can somehow get to safety and travel. The United States has agreed to take on 1,200 immediately and up to 3,500 more. Can you fucking imagine? We invaded a country that literally did nothing to us, occupied it and manufactured a war that killed 47,000 civilians, 66,000 Afghan military and police, 400 aid workers, and 72 journalists. Then we have the hubris to say that it was their fault for being too weak and that we'll take in less than 5,000 of them. Again, assuming they can even find safe passage. Let no man forget how menacing we are. We are lions. No, we're fucking monsters. Aside from having really bad manners about the whole thing, Biden is doing the logical thing, of course. We had to leave. Trump, of course, is shouting from the sidelines now and saying that Biden did it all wrong. In the meantime, Biden's all like, I'm the guy who does his job. You must be the other guy. And there's not much we can even say on the way out the door because as the Afghanistan papers leak showed, we never knew what the fuck we were doing there. Moreover, like Vietnam, we lied through our teeth about the gains that we were making, the success of the so-called surge, which did nothing to move the needle, and progress in building their military apparatus to stand on its own someday without us. From the Afghanistan Papers leak, Richard Boucher, Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asian Affairs under President Bush, put it rather bluntly, saying, quote, If we think our exit strategy is to either beat the Taliban, which can't be done given the local, regional, and cross-border circumstances, or to establish an Afghan government that is capable of delivering good government to its citizens using American tools and methods, then we do not have an exit strategy, because both of these are impossible. It was an open secret that the corporate media and U.S. government basically covered up. As far as the Vietnam comparisons go, they're mostly fair and accurate. Until this point, and this point only, this is our modern Vietnam. An attack on an impoverished nation of brown people that played patsies to our geopolitical game of chess. But the comparisons between them will end here. The Vietnamese people were able to eventually emerge from the darkness we imposed upon them and regain economic standing in the world, though even their emergence is Faustian, as we'll show. Bob, I got a bad feeling on this one, all right? I mean, I got a bad feeling. I don't think I'm going to make it out of here. The plight of the Afghan people going forward will look very, very different than Vietnam, but it won't matter to us, and most of us will never know. Because in a matter of months, maybe even weeks, we'll forget about the women, the girls, and the whole of the nation of Afghanistan. Because that's what happens when we leave. Thank you all for attending. The president will be joining us shortly. Oh, I haven't seen old LBJ in a dog's age. Mr. Biden, I... 
didn't know you'd be joining us. <laughs> Neither did I. Uh, let's take quick attendance. Secretary Blinken, present. General Austin, present. Senator Menendez, present. Mr. Klain, the president is on her way in. Madam Madam president. president. Have a seat, everyone. Thank you for coming together on such short... Your baby, what you doing here, silly? I ran into old Tony Blinken, and he said our game of Pinochle was about to start. I said we're meeting about your debacle, sir. Oh, well, I don't know how to play debacle. I'll just follow along till I get the hang of it. <sighs> Ron, fetch Mama some warm milk and my iPad. Yes, ma'am. Joe, why don't you come sit on my knee while we start the meeting? We're going to play the quiet game, okay? Except you're the only one playing. I bet you I'll win. The folks on the train used to make me play this all the time. Come on, man. Oopsie-daisy. Ah, there you go. Okay, folks, it's time to talk about Mamala's next election. I got a trillion dollars in my pocket, an itchy trigger finger, and no one to shoot. So what do you got for me? Cuba, ma'am. We should attack Cuba. Give me Cuba. I would like Cuba. I vote Venezuela. I say we remain focused on Al-Shabaab. Shabuya roll call. My name is Joe. Yeah. Joe Biden, you lost the quiet game. God darn it. Come on, man. This is a failure of imagination, people. There's a whole big world out there. And Mama needs to make a splash. You got to start thinking WWDCD. What would Dick Cheney do? Um, uh, ma'am, you see that red button there? I love red buttons. I used to watch them all the time on the telly. Oh, damn it, you tricked me. Uh, as I was saying, ma'am, if you press that button, you'll have access to Dick Cheney's magic WMD globe. But I warn you, it's intoxicating, ma'am, and impossible to turn back from. My precious globe I will have. Who the hell let Ted Cruz in here? Ron, please escort Senator Cruz and Jabiden from the Situation Room. My precious. Come on, man. Okay, Mamala. Here goes nothing. It's so beautiful. Madam President, I give you Dick Cheney's magic WMD globe, given to him by the Dulles Brothers. Spin the globe, close your eyes, and point your finger. Wherever it lands will be our next battleground. But I should warn you, you only get one spin, and wherever it lands, you must attack. There's no turning back. Then so it shall be, and so it shall be written. In the name of Dick and all those neoconservative hawks who came before him, grant me the power to invade a nation and ensure my election in 2024. Oh my God, it's so powerful. Tony, I, I can't see anything, but I can feel my finger on the globe. Tell me, Tony, what does it say? <coughs> it's difficult to tell, ma'am. Let me get a little. Oh my God. No, please, Lord, forgive us. What is it? Is it Cuba? Iran? Venezuela? China? It's, it's... God, help us all. To be continued. We have a history of overthrowing countries, installing dictatorships that work closely with our military and our industry interests for as long as it suits our needs. Then, when we pull out, lose interest, or get our asses handed to us in an uprising, we blame the people of that country for not appreciating our largesse and generosity. Pinochet in Chile, the Shah in Iran, Gaddafi in Libya, Batista in Cuba, Noriega in Panama, Armas in Guatemala, Suharto in Indonesia, Baby Doc Duvalier in Haiti, you get the picture. Nations such as these that have had the misfortune of attracting our attention have four options to move forward when we leave. The first option is to fall in line and become a client state of the United States. Two flavors of this type. Either leave the strongman dictator we selected in place and take what you get from our trade agreements, or organize your entire economy and political system around us, as in the case of Japan post-World War II. So that's one. 
Another option, if you're fortunate enough to possess a commodity that holds some economic value in the world, is to give us the middle finger and try to go it alone or cozy up to our adversaries. Iran, Cuba, Venezuela, and Libya come to mind. Cuba had sugar. Iran, Venezuela, and Libya had oil. Choose this path and forever be subjected to economic sanctions and pressure that will ostensibly hobble your ability to develop a broad-based economic system beyond your primary commodity. And know that we will never, ever stop fucking with you for committing the sin of independence. And if, like Gaddafi in Libya, we sense an opening to destabilize your nation and oust you from power, you better know that we're coming. The third path is relevant if you're of minor strategic importance, but just enough to make us keep our big toe on the scale without too much effort. In this case, we'll let you live in a suppressed purgatory such as Indonesia or Guatemala. Helping you doesn't do enough to warrant our love and annihilating you only gives us a headache. So you're neither here nor there. We might blame you for issues we created like Guatemala or say that you're someone else's problem like Indonesia and we'll extract whatever we need when it suits us. But otherwise, you're nothing to us. You're nothing to me now. You're not a brother. You're not a friend. I don't want to know you or what you do. And then there's the dreaded fourth scenario where Afghanistan is about to find itself. Desolation, isolation, the Haiti scenario. No real strategic importance, not enough resources for us to give a shit. Black and brown inhabitants, the deadliest of all combinations. Well, like Haiti, Afghanistan doesn't have enough natural or fossil resources to warrant our attention. And though it bookends Iran with Iraq on the other side, its proximity to Pakistan and China make it more of an Eastern issue, i.e. not our fucking problem. We have so many bases in the region at this point that maintaining a presence in a landlocked country with no oil really doesn't mean shit to us. No ports, no critical fossil resources, no pipelines, no commerce. Just sand and mountains. So fuck them. A wise man's life is based around fuck you. The United States of America is based on fuck you. You're a king. You have an army. Greatest navy in the history of the world. Fuck you. Blow me. When we left Vietnam, we left it in shambles. Two million dead, three million disfigured and wounded. Twelve million refugees. A decimated public infrastructure. We didn't hand the communists a victory as much as we handed them a bag of shit. And the decade following our exodus was painful for the Vietnamese people. But they had two things their modern Afghan counterparts do not. Abundant natural resources and ports. It took the unified socialist government a decade to begin healing the wounds from war with the United States and subsequent skirmishes with China and Cambodia. And then, beginning in 1986, Vietnam opened broad trade agreements and began exporting goods and attracting foreign investment. And in the 90s, it made a deal with the devil and opened itself to trade with the United States. It selected option one to become a client state and, of course, we graciously accepted the invitation to exploit their labor. In the 2000s, Vietnam's GDP increased dramatically and helped lift tens of millions of people out of poverty. But of course, nothing is free. The other side of capitalism is the two-headed monster of inequality and pollution. According to the World Bank, over the past two decades, Vietnam has emerged as the fastest growing per capita greenhouse gas emitters in the world growing at about 5% annually. Unsustainable exploitation of natural assets such as sand, fisheries, and timber could negatively affect prospects for long-term growth. Compounding the problem is the reality that much of Vietnam's population and economy is highly vulnerable to climate impacts. So now contrast the possibilities in Afghanistan with what Vietnam was able to accomplish. It has none of the geographic, geopolitical, or resource advantages. After 20 fucking years of us occupying, nation-building, and spreading democracy, fully 50% of the Afghan population still lives in poverty, according to the World Bank. It already suffers from floods, earthquakes, heat waves, and disease, the biggest causes of death. And the IPCC reports that these circumstances will only intensify greatly over the coming decades, with much of Afghanistan and the Middle East becoming uninhabitable by 2100. And unlike Vietnam, Afghanistan, due to its lack of industrialization, is considered one of the lowest contributors to climate change. 
If there was ever any hope that Afghanistan could chart a path forward to create a more resilient infrastructure to battle the effects of climate change that it didn't create, it just hopped on a jet in Kabul and beat a path back to the United States, never to be thought of again. So as the comparisons continue for the next several weeks, before we wipe the memory of this desolate and utterly fucked nation from our national hard drive, let's try to refrain from calling this our Vietnam moving forward. Afghanistan will not become a client state. It won't have the strength to give us the middle finger and chart a path forward with our adversaries. It won't even warrant a passing glance like Indonesia or Guatemala. Afghanistan will reside firmly in the tragic fourth camp along with Haiti. So what was it all for? Let's talk about it. The Biden administration's releasing its first federal budget proposal as well. The president's proposing a $1.5 trillion annual budget for the next fiscal year. That's $118 billion higher than 2020. Here's some of the biggest headlines. It includes $753 billion in defense spending, up less than 2% from last year. It would give the Pentagon about the same amount as last year. What was it all for indeed? When all you have is a hammer, then all the world is a nail. The real politique question isn't what just happened, but what happens next. The United States spends more on national defense than China, India, Russia, the UK, Saudi Arabia, Germany, France, Japan, South Korea, Italy, and Australia combined. And as The Intercept noted recently, the past couple of decades were especially good for Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, and Northrop Grumman. Then there are the mercenaries and contractors we employ and protect the ones who carry out covert operations and do our dirty work, the manufacturers and suppliers of the big guys at home, and the ones who export arms across the globe. We all know the military-industrial complex is the beating heart of the U.S. economy, with more than three-quarters of a trillion dollars committed to it annually, and that doesn't include veterans' affairs and homeland security. How did we go from $300 billion at the turn of the millennium, $300 billion, to $750 billion today, and why the fuck are we projecting out years to grow by 5% per year over the next decade? For what? On what? In last week's Quickie, we posed this question, which is what prompted this episode. Where the fuck is the media in questioning this preposterous level of continued spending? Last year, Representative Barbara Lee of California, the only fucking member of Congress to vote against the war in Afghanistan, mind you? introduced House Resolution 1003 with 24 Democratic co-sponsors. While largely symbolic, at least someone is thinking about this shit and introducing it into the public record. Here's a summary of the resolution. This resolution expresses the sense of the House of Representatives that Congress supports 1. Reducing waste at the Department of Defense, 2. Making cuts to the DOD's budget while simultaneously improving support for members of the armed forces, 3 exercising aggressive oversight over DOD, four, eliminating the Overseas Contingency Operations Account, and five, reallocating certain defense funds to instead support U.S. diplomacy and domestic programs. The preamble to the resolution says it all. Quote, whereas Pentagon spending adjusted for inflation since 9-11 has increased 50%, end quote. I'll link the PDF in show notes because the rest outlines the waste and mismanagement that comes when you're forced to spend more money than you asked for or you know what to do with. And that's precisely what has happened for the past 20 years. When I was putting together this show, my mind was going in so many directions on fuckers. And when I was reviewing Bernie's out-year projections in the quickie last week, my blood was fucking boiling. Why are we just assuming that these budgets will continue? You know that this kind of non-inflationary spending isn't what tweaks me, even if it's demonstrably offensive, evil, and irresponsible. It's the fact that we've normalized this level of spending on industrial militarization, surveillance, and dirty wars to such an extent that it's not even news when we simultaneously pull out of our longest war and propose a budget that increases spending for the next 10 years. From $300 billion per year to $750 billion and growing, despite the fact that we aren't at war? What are we doing? Are there really only 20-odd members of Congress that see this fucking bullshit? And why aren't they holding a press conference every day or a vigil, a fucking hunger strike, anything? The resolution pointed out a handful of deficiencies to illustrate the point that maybe, just maybe, the DOD has more money than it knows what to do with. Like this one. The Pentagon awarded a $7 million cloud computing contract to a one-person company. Or, the Defense Logistics Agency lost track of $800 million in construction projects. 
How about this? Last year, the Pentagon spent $4.6 million on crab and lobster in an end-of-the-year spree. Or how the Pentagon had no way to track replacement parts for the $1.4 trillion F-35 Joint Strike Fighter program. Or how the military budget accounts for more than half of all discretionary spending. It's almost a bad joke at this point. The problem with the Democrats' messaging is that they always have to offset it with what else it could cure. You ever seen a Republican do that? We need to go to war, so we're going to pull money from here to go there. No, they just fucking go to war and spend the money. But the Democrats are like, well, if we take $10 from the war budget, we can put $10 into fucking food stamps. Just fucking put the money where we need it. We have it. Take a fucking economics class. The war machine isn't stupid, by the way. Military contractors are located mostly in Republican districts, which are largely Republican because the districts have been so gerrymandered. And they're funding the political machine to ensure that Republicans maintain control of state legislatures and give themselves an advantage in congressional elections. The answers are right in front of the Democrats right now. But you're witnessing deliberate inaction that ensures nothing will change. We're going to talk about this next week on Fuckers, but the path is incredibly clear. The new Voting Rights Act, H.R. 1 for the People, would take back control of our election system and ensure total participation and reduce the influence of special interests. With the new census data in hand, the Democrats should be working overtime to draw realistic district maps that deliver true representation. The filibuster has to go because the things we need to accomplish won't always get done through reconciliation. And Congress could use this brief window with literally no foreign entanglements to repatriate federal military funds and personnel to deliver on the promise of a Green New Deal, which would convert the domestic industrial military supply chain to create a manufacturing revolution that could help convert the nation's energy and transportation infrastructure to a clean energy economy. If only we approach this with wartime speed and efficiency. But as I've said before, if all you have is a hammer, then the whole world is a nail. The military-industrial complex has only one incentive, and that is to generate conflicts abroad in order to sustain its largesse in the world. Just like the private prison system when we went over that, right? If your clients are prisoners, if you literally call your prisoners customers... You need more of them in order to grow when you are a private company. Well, we have a pretty big privatized military industrial complex at this point that needs more customers. And where do you get them? You start a fucking war. That's just how it works. There is officially now zero reason to maintain a budget this extraordinary. We have the satellite technology to surveil every inch of the planet and target a purported enemy of the state in the backseat of a fucking car thousands of miles away. We see all and know all. So even if you truly believed that there was an imminent threat on U.S. soil, we have the power to snuff it out at a moment's notice. We're not fighting China over nukes and acts of aggression. We're fighting them over patents and intellectual property. We're not fighting the Russians over territory in some country that ends in Stan. We're fighting cyber attacks and disinformation campaigns. And yet... We maintain a military apparatus that stands at the ready to deploy troops, carriers, and fighter jets for conflicts that simply don't exist. Unless we make them up. And that's the danger. That's always been the danger. That we will will ourselves into battle and convince our neighbors and allies like Canada and the UK to join us so we can spread the blame and responsibility. The Tyson principle on fuckers is self-revelatory and we have precious little time to act on it. No third party tilting at windmills, there's no time for that. It's up to us to lift up the voices of the Progressive Caucus and vocally support those who are raising these issues and concerns. There are currently 100 out of 535 representatives who have joined the Progressive Caucus. It's not enough. We need numbers and mobilization and pressure on sitting Democrats to align with them on procedural matters such as voting access, ending the filibuster, and controlling the redistricting process. The Republicans will be coming fast and furious for all of us at the midterms, and if you're paying attention to our current leadership, 78-year-old Joe Biden, 70-year-old Chuck Schumer, and 81-year-old Nancy Pelosi, it should be apparent that they're not the ones that are going to make this happen. And if that sounds ageist, it is. Because they're part of yesterday. We need a groundswell of support for the likes of Ayanna Presley, AOC, Elon Omar, and Pramila Jayapal. They need numbers. And that's where we come in. 
Follow these reps on social media. Let them know that you're here for them. Contact their offices and ask how you can canvass for support in battleground districts that have a chance of going progressive. Stay positive, but get noisy. Reclaim the American flag from the mouth-breathing Trump fuckers and show them what a real fucking badass looks like. Because real badass motherfuckers are progressive. Real badass motherfuckers are here for it and ready to unfuck the republic. Endless war has ended. Don't let them restart. Seize the motherfucking day. Here ended the lesson. baby so you can tell i was a little tweaked today a little tweaked after putting together the budget thing last week and the afghanistan thing just kind of fucking put me sideways you know what i mean 99 yes yeah so not a lot of ha-has in there although you know if you have any guesses as to where we're going to invade where president harris will invade send them our way post them on social so we had a lot of coffee go out this week like a lot of real coffee we had a lot of people buy us coffee and donations uh but we had a lot of coffee go out you know what i noticed a lot of the samplers are going out which is pretty cool so there's a lot of people ordering samplers which gives you one of each the decaf what is it uh decaffeinated unfucking decaffeinated unfucking unfuck your morning and unfuck your afternoon so a lot of people taking advantage of that uh plus that also puts you into the uh, discount realm as well Everybody, just thank you on behalf of Native Coffee Traders, on behalf of the show here. You know how this is funded. It makes all the difference in the world in trying to get us to the next level, increase our visibility out in the marketplace, and introduce us to a whole bunch of new unfuckers, subfuckers, uncanuckers, unfuckers down under, eurofuckers. Lots of fuckers, right? Lots of unfuckers. No fuckers, just all unfuckers. So the coffee donations, people had some things to say. First of all, David V gave us five coffees. That's really generous and said, staring into the void is so much better with a weekly slice of UNFTR. Mike G bought us a coffee and said, we rock as a native person. I enjoy the way you expose history. That's awesome. Edric bought us five coffee. My wife is now a true unfucker, having listened to all of the episodes and loving them. Holy shit. Edric loved the, uh, the economics of racism episode. A lot of love went into that one, and we, we appreciate that. That's the one that I put together while I was on vacation. You know, went pretty deep into so many things in that episode that we're going to be able to tease out and build on future episodes as well. Edric also said, being a mail carrier for 31 years, thank you for supporting the Postal Service and the union labor. Awesome stuff. Darling Mickey was so happy that we sang for her. Oh, her heart melted. 99, her heart melted. That's so sweet. <laughs> Rhonda K bought us a coffee and said she's officially done it. She's made it through the entire archive. Well done, Rhonda. On Facebook, Robert K. That's Knutson, right? Yep. Love Knutson. And Wild-Eyed Bob. Wait. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Yeah. Knutson and Wild-Eyed Bob are the same fucking person? Yes, sir. What is even happening? That's some singularity shit right there. Okay. So from the home county with uh, our girl, Nettie, we said it before, when we launch this thing, when we go public and we take this show on the road, we're going to do this from Outagamie County. Actually, we might do it live from Oshkosh. It'd be so great, right? To kick off a fucking national tour in Oshkosh. (laughs) Maybe just do one stop, like print up a t-shirt with a national tour, but only the only star on the fucking map is Oshkosh. Maybe that's what's being invaded. Uh, we'll have to get Nettie on the show to uh, to talk about it. She actually works with uh, Food Not Bombs. So how about that, right? Wow. They can just throw a whole bunch of salad back at the Kamala's bombs. Rotten tomatoes. There you go. Uh, so anyway, Wild Eye Bob Knutson told everybody on Facebook to uh, check out last week's quickie. Uh, shorter glimpses rather than the usual deep dives. A good way to dip your toe into the world of unfucking. Hey, thanks, Bob, for doing that. Aaron N., Methinks you could do a story on the damage Milton Friedman did to the people of New Zealand and the betrayal by our Labour Party. Okay, well, let's get rocking and rolling down uh, in New Zealand. Don P said, Hi there, just discovered this podcast a couple weeks ago via Canada Land. Oh, welcome, eh? He's loving it. Listen to all the episodes and being a Canuck, particularly loved this one and our take on JT. Also said, uh, since you mentioned residential schools and Gord Downey 
It may interest listeners to know that Gord's final project was an album and graphic novel called Secret Path. Check out secretpath.ca if you are indeed a uh, tragically hip fan and love Gord Downey. On the Twitters, Darren Corston said, so happy to have noticed this little notification that he is a top unfucker. What do they call that on there? A top a top fan badge. But that means Darren's just a top unfucker, right? Yeah, on Facebook. On Facebook. And in our hearts. He said, keep up the great work, Max Manny in 99. Hey, that's you. It is. Wookie Lips 77 said, you really should do an episode or six on GameStop, AMC, PFOF, Citadel, the SEC, FINRA, and the broken public market. You could even have guest speakers. I don't know hmm. what any of those things mean. Yeah, we know people that do, though. I know what GameStop is. And, and I know enough to be dangerous. <laughs> Why? You're the one. <laughs> Are you a big gamer, 99? Oh, yeah. Did I, I love, uh, you know, Minesweeper. Minesweeper? No. <laughs> Isn't that like an Atari game? It's like an old computer game. An old computer I don't game. actually love it. You know what I love about you is, is I know you are the self-proclaimed like youth of the show, but you really are an old soul. <laughs> You've even been in a game stock. That makes you basically a boomer. <laughs> uh, Wild Eye Bob, hey! Wild Eye Bob bucking with me because he's Bob Knutson! <laughs> Asked what Frojo was about. That's right. Well, we discovered what that was. Uh, Nettie McGee said, love the term Cuomosexual. That actually, I believe, started with Randy Rainbow. Do you ever watch Randy Rainbow? Um, no. No? I don't, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, that's just a thing for hip young kids to watch. Yeah. Randy Rainbow's fucking funny. I see his tweets on our Twitter because we share a Twitter account. Oh, there. <laughs> uh, Randy Rainbow is, is lights out funny and creative, uh, but I believe deleted everything related to loving Andrew Cuomo. That's good. I Yeah, that would be a good thing. Brandon Tozo said he really enjoys this podcast. Hey, thanks, Brandon. Witches for weed. Woo! Love me some witches and love me some weed. Gave gave this, or said give this podcast a listen. Super informative in a really funny style. Well, today wasn't all that funny, uh, but it was pretty heavy, right? <laughs> I believe witches for weed is Darling Mickey. <gasps> oh my God. See, okay. So these are, see, these are cross-platform unfuckers. Yeah. These are, these are serial unfuckers yeah, here. Yeah, but they deserve the call-out for, for yeah. the effort. Dar so what? Dar why does Darling Mickey have all the cool handles? Witches for weed. Yeah, he's gonna have to fight with Wookie Lips Seven or whatever. <laughs> hey, that's my taco. No, I'm not saying that to you. I'm saying that that's the person's name. At Hey, that's my taco. I genuinely hope my beloved UNFTR pod is paying close attention to Glenn Greenwald's ever alarming shift, considering the praise he heaped on him. However brief in an early episode, I'd hate for that connection to sour folks on the show, considering how urgent it is for folks to hear. Hey, that's my taco. There's some... <laughs> we were, I was just talking about this with a colleague recently, that there's some crazy shit happening with Glenn, Matt Taibbi, Anna Kasparian, Jimmy Dore, Lee Camp. The left is going bananas and eating itself. Uh, here's the thing about Greenwald, though. Glenn is still probably the smartest fucking person in any room at any given time. I don't and haven't always loved what he says or does. And I don't love the Peter Thiel connection on some of his new platforms right now. I think that that's kind of fucking goofy and dangerous. When he had uh, Intercept, Intercept is uh, backed by a billionaire as well. I mean, that's just how shit gets out. I don't know Peter Thiel. I don't know the owners of Substack. And, and uh, you know, I don't know Mark Zuckerberg, but we all use Wait, these. What? You don't know Mark Zuckerberg? I mean, I can't tell everybody how close we are. Uh, but, you know, all of these people who own these or start these or, you know, founded these platforms probably did some shitty fucking things to get where they are in the world. And then you have people like us that are on top of these platforms to get our message out there. So I don't necessarily want to criticize or throw, you know, or, or throw stones in a glass house at anybody who decides to partner with somebody to put their information on the platform. So long as the information is pure. Now, having said that, if you read Greenwald, I think it's what's, what's happening on the left is that it's people are just coming to the realization that Glenn's not a liberal. He's not a progressive. He is probably closer to being aligned with a libertarian, but you you have to look at Glenn on an issue-by-issue issue basis and try to unpack his intellectual arguments behind the things that he says. I don't think he's always right, but I do think he is smart in his approach. And same thing goes for Taibbi. I actually find Taibbi much more consistent, certainly intellectual, but more hard-nosed, more smash-mouth, but, uh, but very consistent over the years. I'm not interested in punditry. 
I'm really not. I'm interested in thoughtful exposés. I'm interested in, in intellectual arguments and uh, people putting together critical assessments of issues that plague our world, the Republic, and all these things. And I don't think you get that as much from the other platforms as you do from a writer such as Glenn Greenwald. So I'll continue to follow him, but I, I hear you. Hey, that's my taco. And I think it's it's worth always questioning the information, how it's delivered, how well-researched it is. And it's why we try not to, you know, have any hero worship for anybody in particular. Like, if you look at how we're, you know, disappointed that Bernie would just naturally assume that the budget projection should, and the out years for the military budget should be increasing from a, from a starting point of uh, financing two wars. That's just weird and irresponsible. I maintain some of my hero worship for you know the likes of AOC because I think she's extraordinarily consistent and also happens to align pretty closely with my politics but if she says or does something or votes a certain way that's out of the norm then you know she'll get she'll get called out too at any rate I wish everybody would just stop tearing each other down and work more collaboratively together because I do think that there are some issues that are kind of pretty easy to take on and if everybody just sort of aligned that we'd get a lot more you know Anyway, wishful thinking, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, on Podbean, feel great, said, got a better idea of redlining. Thank you, FMF. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for listening to it. That was an important episode. On email, bunch of stuff. Uh, Bill C. said, recommending UNFTR to all my friends and families. Thanks to the New York Times for putting us on the map. That Yes, thank, thanks to the New York Times indeed. That was obviously huge for us. You know, if we can get covered in the Oshkosh Tribune, is that even a paper? I'm sure Hey, it Nettie, is. what's the paper out near you? Can we the get a buy? Oshkosh bi- patch. Uh, yeah, anything, right? A little press release published in the Oshkosh patch. Raphael G., high 99. Yeah, top billing. Wow. Manny and Max. I'm just and Max, huh? Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, oh, this is our this, this is our buddy Raph. So it's not Rafe, which he he clarified. We call him Rafe Raph. So Raph is from down under. He says he wants to be called Rafe Raph. Okay. So he would feel very special and tickled. Oh, hey, Rafe Raph. Down under. Rafe Raph down under wrote us that really funny message that you might remember from last week. uh, And it's just kind of following up with us right now. Uh, Said that, you know, UNFTR has a lot of confirmation bias for sure, but it's so well researched, paced and entertaining uh, that it makes everything more appealing and understandable. He loves the sketches, Rafe Raff does, and asking us if we could do an episode on Australia. So that's call out for one on Australia, call out for one on New Zealand, and uh, maybe stupid ethnocentric Americans that we are, by doing those two episodes, we'll figure out what the difference is between that. No, I do know the difference. I really don't. <laughs> I don't. Uh, Debbie D, is your coffee shade grown and bird friendly? Hang on. Let me see if I got a response yet. I don't have a response yet. I should have a response to that, hopefully soon, from the coffee roaster, so back at you in the next episode. This one's one of my favorite. Ruji said, My parents are QAnon followers, conservative Christians, anti-vax folks who I haven't been able to speak to other than text since before the election in 2020. That is playing out all over the country. Ruji, I am very sorry for that. We all are, and hopefully we're, you know, we're all trying to kind of put this back together, and as some time passes, maybe it'll get better. Ruji told them via text that we can resume their relationship if they're willing to listen to this podcast and have civil conversations. Okay, so, hey, Ruji's parents, if you're listening, just remember one thing. We love you. No matter where you're coming from. Whatever. Yeah, no, 99, we love them. Whatever, 99. What? Be good. Whatever their starting point, we meet them. Where they are. That's right. Meet everybody where they are and hopefully bringing them along. So, uh, Ruji and your parents, hopefully you're listening to this. Maybe even want to isolate this segment. We don't always get it right, but we always own up if we don't. But for the most part, we're right. But we try to put this together in a historical context to help everyone understand that we're all on the same side and we all want the same things. So let's get on the same page together. Thanksgiving's coming up, Ruji. Right? be nice to have a full reunion and if you do reunite for thanksgiving i want a picture right and make it a vegan thanksgiving there she goes again i know i know i know i know and veganism episode forthcoming as well luke r are you planning on selling whole bean coffee at some point yes we are luke r to be perfectly honest we lose a lot of money putting this podcast together so we're trying to grow as fast as we can by getting as many people to order coffee Remember, we don't want people to go out of pocket for something where they would not normally spend upon. But if they drink coffee, please order this coffee because it helps us 
get the show funded, and it helps support indigenous economic development. Nathan S., love the show, love the skits in the middle. Consider doing a show on religion in the U.S. Nathan, will uh, religion will continue to come up. We did an episode called um, Christ as Capitalist. Christ as Capitalist, the Prosperity Doctrine. That was kind of an important early episode for us, which then tied into the Ayn Rand episode, which then kind of tied into the Reagan episode. So uh, we did see that if you haven't caught that. If you listen to that show, let us know what you think about it, uh, and we will consider doing more on it. But if you want to give us some more hints and clues on what you think would make for a good unfucking, that would be great. And Rodney K. Hey, what's up, Rodney K.? Said, hello, Max, Agent 99, and Manny Faces. Oh, but wanted us to know that, that's right, Rodney's from Hamburg, which is only 20 minutes north of Cataragus Reservation and 20 minutes south of Seneca and 20 minutes from Canada. So right in the heart of a lot of the places that I used to report on. So I've definitely been up in that area, which is pretty cool. And obviously, you know that we love Canada. And Rodney said, I mentioned this because these two nations have had a profound effect on all of Western New York. Yes, I've come to to see the Haudenosaunee as a nation. Well, I love that. So glad you like the uh, the work that we're doing on First Nations. Say hey to all my peeps up in Seneca and Cataragus. Oh, and Allegheny and Tuscarora too. So there you go. And uh, oh, he said, thank you for introducing me to other great podcasts like Newsbeat, Pitchfork Economics, and of course, Let's Talk Native with my man, John Kane. Well, that's cool. Love to see the cross-pollination there. And we had a couple of reviews on fuckers before we sign off here. I want to thank Omanel, who came to us saying, stumbled on you guys from Best of the Left recommendation, and wow, only wish I had more time. And uh, D-O-Q-T-Y-R, do you want to... Doctor. Doctor! Why, why am I so bad at reading that? I don't know. It's like when people share license plates, and they're like, isn't that clever? And I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't get it. Like, I, I think there's something wrong with my brain. Well, you knew that. Doctor said, I just listened to the beginning of an episode where the host read a letter from a fan that disagreed with his take. Hey, that's me. I read that letter because the fan disagreed with me. The letter was intelligently written and well-mannered. It certainly was. That's why we read it. The host not only considered the argument, but pointed out where he had made, that's me, a hasty judgment and apologized. That's, that's again, me, and I did that. I'm now hooked. So nice to listen to intelligent people. Well, what's he, what's he listening to? <laughs> Oh, you and Manny. And I may actually learn something. Hey, doctor, let me know if you do. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. The thing I said at the end of last week's episode was super clever, and no one said anything about it, so I'm not going to say anything this time. It's hosted by me, Max. It's distributed by 99. All of the original music in this show is produced by Tom McGovern. Go to TomMcGovern.com. You can find us on Substack, by the way. You can join up for free. You don't have to pay us a thing. We're never going to charge over at Substack. Just go to unftr.substack.com to find all of the essays that show's based on. Go to our website. 99 is doing some pretty cool shit over on the website at unftr.com. That's where you can purchase coffee. It's where you can buy us coffee through the donation button. And you can read all about the prior shows and a whole bunch of other shit. 99, anything that I am leaving out. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod. You can follow us on social at unftrpod. And I think that's about it. All right. We'll see you next week where we're going to unfuck Jerry and Phil. Who's that? Jerry Mander. Okay. Phil Buster. I hate you. <laughs>